1: Let's get a hold of Brian Eha. He is going to be our next guest here on our big broadcast. And then we will bring in IQ and the crew. There's Brian. How are you, sir?
0: I'm well. How are you?
1: Pretty good, actually. Hold on just a second here. I'm bringing in our uh, panelists, Dan Perkins, IQ. Okay, sure, but um, listen, when you...
0: When you introduce me, um can you make sure to say Brian Patrick eha instead of just Brian Eha?
1: no problem then, uh, I can just, do that
0: just and then just introduce me as a technology journalist and the author of the book uh, don't say anything about American Banker if you would
1: not a problem I can do that
0: okay thank you, sir I
1: appreciate it we're gonna get our uh gonna get our guys back with us here and uh we will then bring in our guest no. Mm. There we are. There we are. We, we are back. We've got Don Mazzella with us today from SB Digest. Dan Perkins, uh, now of Newsmax, uh, joining us. Yes. as, as Among at, at, at some point, I'm just going to say Dan Perkins, who writes for every blog and every website on the face <laughs> of this planet. And uh, <laughs> also joining us is our good friend, Mr. IQ Al Rizzoli. And joining us on the telephone is our technology expert, Brian Patrick Eha. He's with us today here on our big broadcast and uh brian you have written a lot of books you have a lot of um technology experience uh you you you've you've been uh in in involved in all sorts of different things uh kind of give us a little bit on your background here your financial background and then we'll let dan perkins jump in there with our first question so go ahead my friend
0: sure well actually uh i've just published one book so far it came out uh, recently it's called uh, how money got free bitcoin and the fight for the future of finance and it is really the uh, deepest and most detailed account uh, journalistic account of the origins and rise of bitcoin and its implications for the world uh, socially politically economically technologically And it is uh, told the story uh, is a, is a really engaging narrative that unfolds through the eyes of uh, a number of different pioneers, these really colorful, brilliant, uh, kind of eccentric characters that you follow uh, through the course of the book. Um, I was an editor at entrepreneur. I uh, just wrote a big 5,000 word feature on, um, cryptocurrency and related topics for the July issue of fortune magazine. I also have contributed to the New Yorker and, um, you know, I, I hold a uh, master's degree from Columbia Journalism School, and so, um, yeah, I, I've I've done quite a bit in the area of kind of, um, you know, cutting edge tech startups, and um, and I also write uh, for American Banker on um, finance and uh, fintech.
1: Now, now, Dan, I'm sure you've got some financial questions. Uh, <laughs> kick us off here, and then we'll go to Don, and then I know IQ's got some questions as well. So, Dan, start us off here with.
2: One of the things, thank you Jim. Uh, one of the things I want, want to raise is that there are a number of bloggers out there who are talking about bitcoins for cash management for corporations and for individuals, uh, the same as treat them as the same as cash. and they have sp- spectacular rises and spectacular crashes. And um, where do you think is the best place to use a Bitcoin?
0: Well, it sounds like you're referring to bloggers who are suggesting that people should use them as a unit of account, maybe. And I wouldn't recommend that because, as you mentioned, the value uh, does fluctuate. Um, I think they should be treated as a a universal currency, uh, which is, you know, one of the things it is it's a form of electronic cash that, uh, you can send around the world in minutes and it works as well in, uh, you know, Kansas as it does in Kathmandu. Um, and so that's, you know, one of the things is to use it as, as what an economist calls a unit of exchange, uh, something with which you just, you know, you buy a plane ticket or a pair of shoes, goods or services. Uh, and then the other purpose is as a a store of value, like gold, something that, retains its value or increases in value over time. And then, of course, uh, some people are kind of day trading these things like uh, stocks or or like currencies where you swap, you know, dollars for euros or for yen and so on, and you try to make a profit on that. Um, So it's a speculative kind of investment asset. Some people are using it as a store of wealth long term, and then others are using it for transactions.
2: Well, I just want to clarify a point that you just said, because Um, As a registered investment advisor for 44 years, uh, words mean things. And I think Mm. it's important to make sure that I understood you correctly and actually Mm. more important that our audience heard you correctly. You used the word speculative investment. Was that your intention? Mm.
0: Yes. Because? Because? Because people are speculating on these as a a commodity, a digital commodity that, uh, you know, may rise in value. And there are online exchanges that operate in some ways like stock markets, except there's no opening or closing bell. There are these online exchanges that exist uh, all over the world. Most countries have at least one of them now, and and some of them will serve uh, international uh, customers, even if, you know, they're not based within the same country. And uh, you can watch these things run 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and um, billions of dollars worth of trading volume are flowing through these exchanges.
2: But in, in reality, uh, while to most listeners, uh, billions of dollars is, seems like a lot of money, in the Forex business, billions of dollars trading is nothing. And what I'm concerned about is that you talk about these exchanges. uh, What countries, securities and exchange commissions, regulate
0: these exchanges? Well, there are exchanges based in the United States, um, but they're not regulated by the SEC because these are not considered securities. Um, In the United States, the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, uh, did come out and state a while back that it considers Bitcoin and you can extrapolate that to, um, other digital currencies that are similar to Bitcoin in nature. It considers them to be commodities. Now, obviously they're not physical commodities like oil or gold or pork bellies. They're digital commodities, uh, that exist, uh, in, entirely in a kind of, you know, electronic realm. Um, but they are commodities. And so, um, they, you know, the, um, The exchanges, when they are taking customers' money, when they are allowing you to, you know, send a wire transfer to fund your account or hook up your bank account to do an ACH transfer for trading purposes, uh, then that is regulated, you know, by uh, FinCEN. It's regulated by some other um, uh, state-level agencies. You have to have money transmitter licensing and so on. Um, and the users have to verify their identities because um, the companies need to comply with anti-money laundering uh, and and know your customer regulations. Uh, but in terms of the actual trading activity, there is there's you know the SEC is not uh, doesn't have jurisdiction over it. Now, what seems to be the case is that there may be this new class of digital assets that are not exactly like Bitcoin, but are are somewhat in the same family. It gets a little complicated to draw the distinctions, but. Uh, the SEC recently came out with some guidance suggesting that not all, but some of those, it may in the future consider to be securities. Um, and some lawyers have already, you know, kind of thought about uh, the implications there. But Yeah, my concern is, and this is my last question, I'll let
2: it go on to somebody else. My concern is that you have no real regulatory authority supervising the transactions and the trading of this uh, and, and I think that it's manifested by the, by the significant volatility that can happen in this in a matter of moments or days. Um, there doesn't seem to be any governmental oversight. And when you have the trading of unregulated securities, uh, in an unregulated market, you have a tremendous opportunity for fraud and theft. And, um uh, I've always been somewhat concerned about that there's no government oversight. There's no real reporting, financial reporting as to what's going on. And I've always been concerned that there are people being duped into uh, Bitcoin is the next best thing in the world.
0: Well, again, I need to emphasize that Bitcoin is not a security. So to say that it's being you know traded as an unregulated security is, is simply inaccurate. Um, there is certainly the potential for, um, you know, people to lose money on these investments, which is why they need to, you know, exercise caution and be careful. Um, you know, in terms of reporting requirements, uh, when people are buying and selling these things and making profits or losses, um, you know, the IRS has issued its tax guidance for how that should be treated for tax purposes. And basically the way it works is if you, you know, sell low or, or, or sell, sell. If, if, if you buy low and sell high and you make a profit, um, if you were holding that digital commodity for less than a year, then uh, you need to report the profit as normal income. If you were holding it for more than a year, then it uh, gets reported as uh, capital gains and the capital gains tax rate applies. And so the IRS is sort of treating them or regulating them like property Um, In that instance, as I said, and that predated even the CFTC saying it considers them to be commodities. So there's a bit of a square peg and a round hole aspect to the uh, the way that, you know, the regulatory oversight is being done, uh, because when Bitcoin came into the world in January 2009, it was like nothing else that that really existed. And um, in the early days, people weren't sure. Whether to call it money, whether to, it was just going to be considered information, and whether it was going to be considered a commodity or something else. Um, so it's it's been quite interesting to see the development, but but uh, you know again these markets are existing and they're functioning uh, as we speak.
2: Just a, a point of clarification, Jim. Uh, I, I, again, did I hear you say, sir, that there are people trading Bitcoin? Uh, On a daily basis. Yes. So they're trading an unregulated item, which is either a commodity or not. But we have people actively taking risk in speculating in the direction of the coins through trading on the exchanges. So there is an element of risk and loss of people who try and trade. And when you use the name trade, you can use the use trade commodities, or you can trade securities. Um, this has supposedly a liquid market, so I understand the regulatory issue, but I, I want people to understand that it's also being traded in many respects the same way commodities or other securities are being traded in a, uh, in a market that is not specifically regulated by any governmental agency.
0: Well, yes and no. I mean, as I was saying, yes, they're, they're trading as digital commodities. Uh, some of these exchanges where you can uh, trade them get pretty sophisticated and uh, they allow you to do margin trading. They allow you to, you know, uh, set set a floor or a ceiling for your, your buying and selling. So if the price, you know, dips below a certain level that you're comfortable with, it'll automatically sell off your portfolio. Or if it rises to a certain You know level then then you can execute a a sell or a buy order um and some of them you know let you uh trade on margin and so on um Mm -hmm. but yes i mean actually this this is you know to many people quite exciting because it represents a kind of decentralization and democratization of finance now in the glory days of like the commodities exchange in chicago you had traders on the floor who they were not all hyper sophisticated individuals. Some of them didn't even have college degrees, but they were very savvy in a certain way and uh, had learned their trade very well. And they were able to make uh, you know, very handsome incomes for themselves uh, trading commodities. Now the difference here is that rather than, you know, being on a physical trading floor somewhere, this is something that uh, anybody with a, a certain appetite for risk and a certain, you know, willingness to, to put his money, you know, where his, his head is, or I should say, um, is able to get involved. And yes, if they want to invest $1,000 and see if they can turn it into $1,500 or do it with 10 times that amount of money, they're able to do it. But, you know, of course no one's, no one's putting a gun to your head and uh, forcing you to do it.
3: Can I jump in here and go a different direction? Yes. Um, Go ahead. Different direction. Um, ransomware, um, many of them demand payment in um, Bitcoin and then somehow or other uh, elude authorities who try try to uh, follow
0: it. Can, can, you, can you tell me about that? Um, can you talk to that? I'm getting a lot of uh, noise in the background. I'm not sure what that is. was trying okay. to figure out. It
3: stopped. W- was it me?
0: what is it you'd like to know exactly?
3: Well, no. Well, um, I've been trying to follow this ransomware, where they mm-hmm. they lock up your computer and say you must pay $200 to get the uh, encryption, and you pay it in mm-hmm. Bitcoin. And then when the authorities try to follow the Bitcoin trail, they seem to be um, uh, um, they seem to be uh, stymied. What's going on there? And uh, I'm told that uh, the favorite underwear ransom, for instance, Somali pirates now even, is being paid in Bitcoin. How is that possible?
0: Well, the reason it's possible, this is, you know, something that I think before really delving into all of that, that stuff about the exchanges, we probably should have, you know, made clear. One of the things that makes Bitcoin a technological breakthrough is that, Before it existed, there was no way to send money across borders, across national borders to someone else without going through a bank or a payments company like PayPal or Western Union or MoneyGram. And the fact that you can now do that in what is called a peer to peer, or person to person, uh, you know, way is very powerful. Um, And that allows a number of things. One of the positive things it allows, for instance, is remittances. So this is when, you know, immigrants uh, from one country, they're living in another. They want to send part of the money they're earning back home to support their loved ones in sub-Saharan Africa or Mexico or somewhere else. Um, You know, currently they use Western Union and MoneyGram to do this, but those services charge as high as a 10% fee for some of the immigrants to send money back to their families. This, uh, you know, would be called extortionate uh, except that there was no other available option so they just had to had to deal with it um one of the characters in my book predicts that bitcoin is going to do to western union and moneygram what netflix did to blockbuster and we all know what happened there um now that is uh there are companies working on that today there's one venture backed company called abra that uh, is using Bitcoin today to provide cheaper remittances and faster remittances to more than a hundred countries. So Bitcoin has a chance to grab a piece of that six hundred billion dollar remittance market while putting billions of dollars back in people's pockets. Okay, so that's a good use of the fact that this is a borderless or cross-border form of money. The uh, the 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 thing that you bring up, ransomware, is kind of the flip side of that that coin. Uh, no pun intended. It's where, you know, criminals, perhaps cyber criminals on the other side of the world in Russia or China or Ukraine, um, they can, you know, if they can get some malicious software onto your computer, um, it can encrypt some of your files, some of your data. It could be precious family photos or your, you know, tax documents or, you know, something crucial. Um, and then they demand, you know, a ransom. They demand uh, ransom payment in the form of Bitcoins in exchange for the code to kind of, uh, unlock your data and get it back. Now, the only reason they ask for Bitcoin is because as I mentioned, it has this ability to be sent directly from person to person, uh, you know, from one side of the world to the other. And law enforcement had gotten, you know, pretty good at following the money trails, uh, through the traditional, you know, financial system or so it like to think. Um, and also, those, those methods are much more slow. You know, if, if a criminal is demanding that I send him a wire transfer, well, that's going to take days, and it'll be a lot easier to track in terms of where it ends up. Now, law enforcement has devised methods, and other, um, you know, like like anti, uh, anti-malware outfits have devised ways to trace these transactions. In fact, when that huge ransomware outbreak happened earlier this year um, that went by the name of WannaCry there were organizations that were able to trace the uh, ransom payments back to just a few different digital wallets that were holding the currency and they had made law enforcement aware of that. And so they were, you know, I haven't checked in on the developments in the last uh, few weeks, but I know they had sort of pinned them down and it was going to be possible uh, to follow the money if the cyber criminals ever tried to move it. And let's say move it to one of those exchanges I was talking about where they could convert it into you know, dollars or British pounds or some other currency that they might uh, prefer to be holding. So, you know, it it, it has uh, the existence of this this money, you know, I don't think it gives a unique advantage to criminals, but it has ushered in a new age uh, both for good and bad.
3: Yes, but it seems to me, um, and again, I'll just follow up with one question, it, it seems to me that um, if again, my sources are right, uh, it, it's become an almost a third world uh, uh, w- way of avoiding uh, uh, following police because uh, apparently, it once you send it out there and send it to one point, that uh, they can't follow the trail after that, after the initial point.
0: No, that's what I was trying to explain, is, is not actually the case. Um, so Bitcoin is interesting because there is a public ledger uh, that records all of the Bitcoin transactions going back to uh, the dawn of time for Bitcoin, which was January 2009. So there literally is a transparent record of every single Bitcoin transaction that has ever taken place. Um, But what this public ledger does is it kind of reverses our idea of financial privacy with a bank account. So, with a bank account, you can know that I'm a customer at Wells Fargo and I have an account there. But what you don't know is how much money I have in it, and that's the privacy that I have. Bitcoin's ledger reverses that. So, you can see a particular, um, uh, what they call an address for a digital wallet, and you can see how much money is in there, and you can see where it has come from and where it's being sent to. But what you don't know is the name of the person attached to that wallet. But if Uh, you know, so this is kind of, this was a new, you know, a a, a new, um, uh, paradigm and it did take a while for people to catch on. But as I said, you know, I don't know all the details, but it seems clear from some of these people who've been arrested from the way that some of these, um, you know, uh, cyber criminal incidents are being handled, it seems clear that uh, law enforcement and others have developed ways to follow the money. It's kind of a game, you know. It's the, the the criminals will play a show game where they they take the money into one address, then they move it to five others, they split it up into ten others, then they reconsolidate it into you know one wallet again, and so on. And they they try to move the money around, and meanwhile, law enforcement or whoever is uh, chasing them. But it is possible to to follow the breadcrumbs.
3: Um, IQ question. Yes most probably with this type of methodology, which
2: is
0: uh, international and cross-border, the terrorists, Muslim terrorists, jihadi terrorists, will use it. Can they um, I'm sorry, was that a question? Yes, can, can terrorists move enormous amounts of money across borders with bitcoins? Well, terrorists are already moving enormous amounts of money. Um, without needing to use bitcoin right um so hsbc uh was fined a few years ago billions of dollars because it was found to be um you know laundering money for mexican drug cartels who are like the worst people on the planet and um australia's largest uh, mortgage provider i believe the commonwealth bank was just fined by the australian government for hundreds if not i recall thousands of counts of violating the um anti-terrorism financing laws of that country and uh you know these big banks and the traditional financial system and uh and and not to mention you know paper currency are already being used uh by terrorist organizations to the tunes of hundreds of millions if not you know billions of dollars a year Um, right now the total market cap the total value of all the cryptocurrency and these digital assets in existence is $135 billion, which is pretty extraordinary for something that didn't exist 10 years ago. It has uh, increased a lot, but it is still, um, as my first interlocutor was pointing out, still perhaps, you know, not at a level, uh, that seems like more than a drop in the bucket in terms of the, you know, total supply of money in the world. And so, um, while it is possible that some bad actors could use this to send money across borders, um, that is not uh, a large piece of the Bitcoin economy. And you know that is something that that law enforcement you know is very aware of as a potentiality. But I think honestly, the um, fears of that are are overblown.
2: Do you think that the the ease at which money moves through the banking system, that money going through the Bitcoin system is faster and simpler than going through the banking system, therefore easier for the governments to track?
0: Well, it, de- it depends uh, what you're talking about. So it's easier to use, um, a, you know, dollar bill. If you want to buy something from the soda machine, it's easier to swipe a credit card, um, for a certain kind of transaction. But if you, um, you know, want to send money quickly to another country, or if you want to um, have something that you believe will retain its purchasing power, you know, over time, or perhaps increase in value, you know, then Bitcoin can certainly be better. Yes, for certain use cases, Bitcoin is faster, better, cheaper. Um, And then for other use cases, for those of us in the United States, um, you know, we can rely on the traditional banking system. But the truth is, and something that we should never forget, is that we are in a kind of fortunate position in the United States. Uh, Most of us have bank accounts, we have access to financial services, but there are two billion adults in the world today who don't have a bank account at all. And as a result, they're not able to participate in the global economy. But many of these people do nowadays have mobile phones. Some of them even have smartphones. And with these devices, using digital currency, they can be plugged into the global economy and become participants And, uh, you know, we've seen early steps in that regard in Africa using what they call mobile money provided by um, uh, telecom firms. But digital currency is even more powerful and uh, more radical innovation than that. And so I think we should never forget that that in many cases its best use will be, you know, in the near future, it'll be for people in those developing countries.
3: Well, you know, we uh, on our other program, Dan and I had uh, the president, um, ironically, an American, who um, whose company is in India, and provides a service, um, essentially, if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dan. Um, uh, the entire thing is it uses mobile phones. There is a local mm-hmm. person um, who, uh, if a uh, uh, a woman um, uh, has a small business where she collects ten rupees uh, she can um, uh, uh, go and to this a uh, uh, money changer turn it in and for very little money turn that into uh, a credit and vice versa somebody can come to her uh, uh, come to the money lender with the with the phone uh, and and uh, uh, get the money out or go directly from that phone to her. So that mm-hmm. uh, they, they were, in, this, in essence, operating without a um, uh, checking account, but they were <laughs> operating in rupees, not bitcoins. Why do you need bitcoins? Why do you need essentially, um, uh, and I go back, to, I just finished reading, reading a book about William Jennings Bryan and the cross of gold. Bitcoin. There's nothing behind Bitcoin. There's not money. There's not gold. There's not a national economy. There is nothing behind it but a electronic. Uh, so you're creating value out of nothing.
0: Well, that's right. not exactly. It's not exactly uh, true. Um, the you know. But first, it should be kept in mind that uh, there's nothing backing any of the paper currency in the world today either, except the essentially the promise of the central bank or the government, but mostly what holds it together is the social consensus that society needs a medium of exchange and we're going to use these paper bills as that medium of exchange. And uh, everyone's going to agree that they have value and and can be used to purchase things. Uh, So there's an extent to which, I mean, if you look at the history of money, many different things have been used as money beads and shells and, gold coins and pieces of paper. And so there, the first point I'd like to make is there's a sense in which, uh, if enough people get together and agree that something is money, then it will become money. Money is not some magical thing. Uh, it, it is something that, you know, is simply used as a a medium of exchange between people so that we don't have to have a barter economy. Um, but the second thing is that it is not completely arbitrary. What gets chosen as money, uh, in traditional societies? Um, they make that choice based on things like, um, the portability of an item, it's uh, fungibility, it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, one of the reasons gold has been popular for so long is that, you know, it's visible to the naked eye that it is gold. It's, uh, easily transportable and There are a number of different factors that go into it well one of the things that makes bitcoin a technological breakthrough is that it was not actually the first uh the first attempt to create digital cash but one of the big problems that the earlier uh innovators kept running into was if my money exists in electronic form um what's to keep someone from spending it uh ad infinitum the way you can send uh, infinite copies of a word document or an iphone photo You know, I send a word document to you in an email, but I retain an identical copy on my computer. So obviously that doesn't work for money because you could have someone double or triple or quadruple spending the same money. Well this is what the creator of Bitcoin uh, solved. He figured out a way for the first time to have a purely digital asset that there would nevertheless be a limited supply of and it would not be counterfeitable. And so that's why people have been referring to Bitcoin as digital gold, because in the same way there's a limited supply of actual gold in the world, there are a limited number of Bitcoins that will ever exist. And as a result, that allows this scarce digital asset to hold monetary value.
2: But the question becomes, you said, much like our Federal Reserve time and time again has decided how much money will be in circulation or the treasury, you say there's a limited number, but what's to keep, since it's digital there's and there's no government behind it, no oversight, no regulatory authority, what's to say that two years from now, somebody comes out and says, I'm going to offer 3 billion bitcoins? There's no regulatory yeah.
0: agency to stop it, is there? Uh, that's that's actually, no, it's, it's completely not true that there's nothing that would stop that. But we need to stop thinking of, uh, you know, regulatory oversight as something that, somehow prevents all the bad outcomes. Um, you know, the federal reserve is the most, you know, official government regulated institution there is. And you just pointed out yourself that they kind of decide how much money to print, uh, whenever they feel like they can do quantitative easing or they can do whatever. So the fact that there, you know, there's government oversight does not prevent some of these bad outcomes. What prevents that outcome in Bitcoin is that it's written into the software. It is in the code. It has been there for from the beginning that there will be a limited supply. And the entire way that the Bitcoin network is set up is, uh, following that code. Now there is no central mint. There is no central bank for Bitcoin. Instead, a decentralized network of people all over the world are using their computers processing power to record and verify transactions on the network and they all have a constantly updated copy of the ledger, and they keep an identical copy that's updated in real time so that all of the systems around the world maintaining the network can uh, stay reconciled with one another. And the, uh, the miners who are applying extremely, you know, uh, <laughs> an extremely great amount of computer processing power to uh, maintain the network, they are rewarded every so often with the creation of new Bitcoins. So new Bitcoins are being created right now, but first of all, at a predetermined steady rate so that everyone knows in advance. So there's no mystery to it like there is with the Federal Reserve. And then second of all, every four years, the amount of new Bitcoins being created gets cut in half and then it gets cut in half again and then it gets cut in half again. So the amount of new currency being introduced into the system is slowing down over time. You can think of this as a fairly elegant solution to the fact that early on you need to issue a good number of these uh, these you know digital coins so that a good number of people can participate in the system. But as uh, time goes on, each coin increases in value, and each coin can be divisible down to eight decimal <laughs> places. So today we've got you know one bitcoin is over worth over four thousand um, dollars. So as it continues to increase in value, if that is what happens. Uh, people won't be trading whole bitcoins anymore. They'll be trading maybe a tenth of a bitcoin or a hundredth of a bitcoin, and so on. Um, and so, the final fraction of a bitcoin won't be created, I think, until the year twenty-one forty. But the majority, there will only ever be twenty-one million bitcoins in existence, and sixteen point five million of them already exist. So, we've already got most of the the total, you know, kind of um, supply already out there in world circulation. So what, what I'm curious
2: as to who decided that we're going to have 21 billion
0: coins. Who, who made
2: that decision?
0: 21 million. Um, yeah, 21 million the, the cre- yeah yeah. So the creator of Bitcoin um, wrote that into the code. It was adopted by people who found this, you know, interesting from an economic uh, perspective that, you know, in, I mean, think about when Bitcoin was created, it was January, 2009 is when it was, was first released into the world. Mm -hmm. This was the height of the financial crisis. And many people had lost faith in central banks and the governments, you know, that they're tied to, and they'd lost faith even in the larger commercial banks. And they wanted to allow people to be their own bank. And they wanted to create uh, a currency that rather than being sort of Uh, having its purchasing power inflated away over time, it could actually, uh, you know, do the opposite and be a scarce digital asset. And so the way the Bitcoin network works is that there is a, uh, a team of developers who are responsible for, you know, kind of when necessary, upgrading the software, you know, fixing bugs in the software, if any of those are found. And of course, in the early days, they were found and so on but they don't have the final say to just say, Oh, we've decided to change this rule. We're going to make it uh, 21 billion coins now instead of 21 million because they need to get all the other stakeholders in the network by majority vote to agree, uh, to that update to the software. And there are so many people now, the number of cryptocurrency users worldwide now rivals the population of small countries. And, um, And they would have to get this group of people I mentioned who are applying their processing power to maintain the network and and create new Bitcoins. Those people are called miners. It's kind of a euphemism, of course, but they're called miners. And you would have to get a majority of the miners in the whole global network to agree to run this new version of the software. And they would have no reason to do that. They would have no reason to shift to a version of the software that kind of ruins the value of the currency it's actually, okay. once you once you understand it, it's a tremendously elegant way to get, you know, a decentralized network to all agree on something and to, to maintain its value over time.
2: Good. Thank you.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, one thing I do want to say quickly to your listeners, because we've been delving into all this nitty-gritty stuff, but, um, you know, my book will, if you read the book, you'll learn all this stuff, but um, my book is not a how-to manual. I'm not trying to promote Bitcoin. I'm not trying to say it is definitively the, you know, future of the world. Uh, I'm a journalist and I took myself completely out of the book and I really crafted a narrative, um, where I follow, you know, in kind of like a Michael Lewis sort of way. I followed this cast of characters who are, you know, Bitcoin entrepreneurs, they're, uh, innovators, they're investors, former wall street guys, um, all types of people who are in some way involved particularly in the first several years of this technology. And, um, each one is in, involved for his own reasons. Each one has his own vision for it. Um, and they kind of work together. Sometimes they butt heads, you know, they, they team up with or work against, you know, Silicon Valley investors Wal- uh, Washington regulators. And, um, it tells a very compelling story. Uh, but along the way through the eyes of these characters, you learn, I think, a kind of a sneaky amount of information about, you know, world finance, economics, financial regulations, and startup culture that has become the engine of a global economy, and all of these great topics. But but it's not at all a dry work of finance or economics. And it's also because you guys have been, you know, asking me a lot of kind of tough questions. I've had to put myself, in some sense, in the the position of defending Bitcoin. But that's <laughs> not actually what I'm trying to do in the book at all. I'm not yeah. trying. To, convince people i'm trying to let them uh, read a great story and make up their own minds about these facts
3: i, I just have one question for you would you invest sure. your, your savings in a bitcoin <laughs>
0: well in one bitcoin it wouldn't have to be my my whole savings oh, in a bitcoin, well, but but in in bitcoin or digital currency no i i know what you're saying um well, if I had a time machine, uh, you know, uh, the the truth is when I first wrote about Bitcoin, it was 5 years ago. It was August 2012. One Bitcoin was worth less than $10. Today, one Bitcoin is worth more than $4,000. If you wow. could go back 5 years into the past, wouldn't you put some of your savings into Bitcoin? Yes. No <laughs> matter, no matter how. Yes, No matter how. <laughs> yes, right. I would. No matter how if I could have bought it it
3: RCA, if I could have bought RCA at 3 in 1933, I'd also be rich. I mean, you know. Exactly. Uh, right. I, no matter how uh,
0: strange you think it is, when you <laughs> see some kind of value like that, uh, some kind of increase in the market price, it's it's pretty compelling. The truth is, for me, um, I actually did think it had real potential. I did think it was going to become big way back, you know, in August 2012. But I was a young journalist. I had, you know, a modest savings. Um, I didn't know really when, even if it was going to become big, I didn't know when that might happen or how long it would take. Um, I, didn't re- and I, I thought I might need to live on my savings in the meantime um, if, if some emergency happened. So I, I didn't really think I could risk it. And then as I got deep into, you know, I was doing the book projects and committed to that, you know, for, for ethical reasons, I, I didn't think I could be invested in Bitcoin while at the same time, you know, writing about it or, or in any way being seen to promote it. The same a, jur- pilot, you know. a
3: journalist a journalist that has an ethics mm-hmm. I'm glad to find another one
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. so but but sure it's been you know it's been a little tough watching it rise from a you know ten dollars sure. or or even a few years ago when it was a few hundred dollars to now you know several thousand dollars um you know if I could go back even to a month ago or something and invest a little bit uh yeah maybe i would but <laughs> But uh, I think I think even the, the smart people in the system they say they never you know they always say never risk more than you can lose uh, than you can afford to lose and um, the the accepted wisdom now is starting to be well maybe five to ten percent of your portfolio could be in these assets you know if you have a tolerance for risk but you know <laughs> I do know of people who like a college student who wrote a, a thesis on Bitcoin before even most of his computer science professors knew what it was. And now he's running uh, a hedge fund out in San Francisco that invests exclusively in a, in these assets. Um, really smart guy. But when he was a young college student, he put his modest life savings into Bitcoin. Uh, so he did go total risk. Uh, and then, you know, he was rewarded <laughs> handsomely for it. But, of course, that's not what I recommend, especially nowadays.
1: Well, uh, mm. well Brian... Oh, uh, oh, oh. Well, go go ahead, I Don. Gonna
3: say, Don say, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, a really great and interesting guest. Thank you. Um, restored my faith in reporters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
1: Now, Brian, well, hey, pick up my book and <laughs> Brian. Let me know what you b- think. Before we let you go, how do we pick up your book? How do we communicate with you online? All that information.
0: Sure. Sure. So uh, the book is available at uh, Barnes and Noble and bookstores around the country. I've had people tell me they've you know, picked it up in Denver and other places. Um, You can easily get it on amazon.com.